Judges chapter 13. And our 13 judges that we have in the book of Judges, this is our 13th. He's also, I would imagine, the most known of all of them. We always picture him as sort of this gigantic buff guy. Uh, Scripture doesn't necessarily make him that way. It makes him only strong in the Lord. As a matter of fact, what we're going to find is that they're actually trying to figure out the secret of his strength. If he looked that gigantic, I'm not too sure necessarily if they would be asking the secret of it. Nonetheless, and I do think that the Lord picks people often who are weak to show his strength. God makes that clear in Scripture. We are in Judges 13. The story of uh, Samson will be, in essence, chapters 13 through 16. And then the rest of the book will be this crazy story and the fallout from a, uh, from a Levite. And I do read this in Hebrews 11.32. What more shall I say? For the time would fail to tell me of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets. He's listed in the Hall of Faith. Although he's a bit enigmatic in that because he always seems like a guy that's, well, he seems very, very uh, filling the stereotype of what kind of a big guy would be like. Judges 13 verse 1 says this, and we'll pray, Lord, please, again, as we've prayed in, in, in worship, Lord, please let us really, truly care from you tonight. And I pray you would open our hearts, Lord, to everything you have in store for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. In Judges 13, 1, it says, And again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the, of the Philistines for 40 years. It is the longest oppression of all of the times we have. Um, of all of the eight, uh, I'm sorry, of all of the 13 judges that we have, undoubtedly, this is, matter of fact, this is so much longer than the, the last one. It was actually twice as long as the second place runner during the time, by the way, of Deborah, when the people finally cried out and God raised up a Deborah. The, uh, this has been now an oppression for 40 years. Now, it's important to recognize when we're looking at something like the book of Judges, that the story of Ruth or the beginning of Samuel takes place during some part of this. Uh, we can't necessarily just nail it down and say, well, there it is right there. But it, but it is in like, okay, well, that ends and then this begins. As a matter of fact, when we get to the book of Ruth, I, actually one of the things I really like about it is that we really do kind of look at uh, this redeeming story in the midst of absolute mayhem and chaos. Uh, and, and again, this is the picture that's painted here. Now, can I say this as we kind of go into this a little bit? There's a couple things I want us to note. Uh, God has made really clear by the time he, he, he'll say seven times again in this book that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That they didn't just do evil and they weren't trying to hide it, but they did it right in God's sight. Uh, literally, by the way, panim, the word means in his face. And of course, that kind of, at least for me, that has even a greater impact because I think of what that would be like for someone to do something wrong and they kind of know it. And I think of what it would be like for someone in brazen uh, disobedience and anger, just kind of doing it in my face. And seven different times we read that God, I'm sorry, that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And six different times we read that the Lord delivered him over as a result of it. Uh, Judges 1, 3, 6, 11, 12, of course, here in 13. Now, with that in mind, I do want to point out a couple quick verses as we get into this text. Uh, it does say in Romans 15:4 that whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. One of the strangest things God says, and, and, and I think that's one of the reasons he riddles the Old Testament full of, of the mistakes 
of his people is that we somehow can find hope in that. And he says, the stuff that we're reading here, I, I want you to read it. I want you to read the Old Testament and I want you to know it. And one of the reasons is, is that if you were to read it right, you would learn from it. And one of the things, of course, we learn is don't do what they did. And the other thing, of course, is to learn uh, to get great comfort and hope through it. Because one thing we realize is that God just doesn't bail on these people as stupid and as selfish and, and clearly as evil as doing something in his face seven different times in this book alone. It also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, that these things became our examples that we shouldn't lust after the things that they lusted after. And it tells us just five verses later in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Admonition, if you will, means in, in the simplest sense, challenge or warning. So he goes, well, as we're reading this, he says, these things were written to warn you, to challenge you, to keep her from lusting after what they lusted after. They were written as examples. They were written for our patience as we read them, that we would see in patience that God does respond, but sometimes God responds you know, often quite a bit later than we would like him to. And, of course, the comfort of the scriptures that we find in this, in God's faithfulness, that we would have hope. Now, in our story here, it tells us, and it's important, as, and, and we'll develop primarily the first couple of verses, and then the rest of it kind of plays out almost on its own. We read that the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord again the seventh time, and the Lord delivered them, and then of God is the sixth time, uh, into the hand of the Philistines. Well, who in the world are the Philistines? It's important to kind of note, if we were to kind of dig a little bit about that, what we realize is that they're introduced back in the book of Genesis, chapter 10. Now, if you look at the book of Genesis, what you find, by the way, is after the flood and Noah has landed, there are a group of people that have kind of made their way through. And you read about these two lineages. And well, one of the people you're going to find is a guy named Nimrod. And Nimrod, by the way, becomes the father, in essence, of Babylon. All of the false religions, all birthed from there, the Tower of Babel, from which we, is the, if you will, the root word for Babylon. And it tells us, by the way, that this Nimrod began his kingdom, and it was called Babel. And he was also then, and by the way, a place called Pathrushim, and Pathrushim means the south regions, if you will. And then Kalsihum, the tribe, by the way, that would birth Egypt. And then also from them came the Philistines and the Kaftorim, and the Kaftorim are the people of Crete. So this guy, which we read, by the way, a mighty hunter in the face, kind of same idea here, in the face of God, a killer in the face of God, creates this place, and it is a place, if you will, for all spiritual weirdness. The only thing it doesn't seem to house is the true and living God. And I think that's a really important point, is that the birth of the Philistines as we know it, by the way, really was one of spiritual uh, weirdness in every way. I mean, it's, it's just, it was a very, very spiritual uh, situation, and then that is kind of, that's going to become key. Uh, by the way, the word Philistine, for what it's what, it, what it's worth, actually means foreigner. And I think that's interesting because if you have a group of people called the Philistines fighting over land with a group of people called the Hebrews, which by the way means from beyond, you have foreigner and not from around here fighting over land. I think that's a little bit strange, and unless somebody else has a right to give you the land, and, and actually it's their land, well, then I think then you, who has a right to claim it? Well, God, of course, owns the land. All of it's his anyways. 
Abraham and Isaac both will visit the place in Genesis 21 and 26. Uh, both of them, by the way, visiting one of the leaders there as well, by the way, Abimelech. Uh, and we'll know, by the way, it was known for its military might. In Exodus chapters 13 and 15, when the first worship song kind of bursts forth, you realize one of the great things about it is he says, well, but, by the way, the, even Philistia will hear about this mighty work that God has done. And God, by the way, says, when I take you out of the land of Egypt, I'm not going to run you through the land of the Philistines right away, because it says, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But the land was promised them. That land, by the way, where they settled, coming, by the way, from what appears to be the area of the Mediterranean and landing then on the west coast, that area today is still considered, by the way, that's the area that we read the word Palestinian. It's just, if you will, the abonics of the word Philistine. There are no, there have never been a Philistine currency. There's never been a Philistine language or Palestinian, I'm sorry, currency or no Palestinian language. Uh, it's Arabic, just so you know. But it is important to recognize that the Philistines were people who banked on that area, and one of those lands was Gaza. We know the Gaza Strip, by the way. We've done actually a lot of work there. We've delivered relief there uh, as a church, uh, as a group of Christians, and it's important to know. We know what the people are like there. Uh, they are definitely raised hating Israel, and they're raised, to be honest, hating England and America. So, And that's just kind of a Muslim thing. But, but we are there helping them eat, uh, and, and, and to be honest, to giving them uh, shampoo and soap and things that they can't get often. In that environment. Now, understand that whole strip, by the way, was promised them still. Exodus 23 and in Joshua 13, God made really clear that that land was still part of uh, Israel's land. Shamgar, of the 13 uh, judges, he's the only one we read, by the way, that's ever had to deal with Philistia. Up to this point, we've seen a lot of other sort of enemies stepping in. We are certainly going to see them be a very, very predominant problem. Now, now, please understand something here. We're going we're gonna to kind of bring this right into our text. That how do we apply that today? I mean, we don't see Philistines today. We could say the Palestinians, but how do we see this? How does this apply to us today? I look at this group of people that kind of show up on the scene. It's birthed in spiritual weirdness, and it's always kind of some funky spiritual aspect coming around with it. Um, by the time we get to First Samuel, by the way, interesting, by the way, we'll see the term Philistine uh, in one manner or another, mentioned 125 times in that book. And then it'll actually be mentioned 53 times in Second Samuel. And, and understand, God's going to say that, that Samson is going to begin to take down Philistines, the, the land of Philistia, or actually the Philistines. And what will happen is, though he will begin it, Samuel will step in and take over where, by the way, Samson left off. But it's David who's going to actually ultimately conquer them. And that actually shows me something. Now, now, please understand, again, like always, please don't just believe me, but I, I need to roll this out for just a second and we'll get into our text. This whole concept of spiritual warfare, it becomes such a buzz term among Christians, and we don't even know what in the world it means. I mean, we just kind of feel like if something isn't right, if something is weird, if something is, you know, whatever, we kind of get this idea, well, then must be spiritual warfare. If I spilled, you know, my Diet Coke in my lap or if I was on a bus and some guy next to me just starts acting weird or, or you know, I, I missed the bus, it must be spiritual warfare. And it's like I woke up and I felt just icky or I have a stomach ache, you know, although I know what I ate last night, I deserve it, but it's spiritual warfare. And I just really want to point out at least scripturally, I want to put some scriptural sanity to that. 
Because I realize, as I kind of look at this, I kind of realize the Philistines, in the simplest sense, are really a really good example of what spiritual warfare happens. Because, by the way, this particular spiritual warfare, these Philistines, really, for the most part, don't seem to be a real problem until Israel takes the land. Now, granted, we're going to see, by the way, with Abraham again and Isaac, that they pop into the place. But to be honest, they, it's the Philistines that suffer in their compromise for going there. Both of them are there out of compromise. And I think it's interesting because every time they show up, it always seems to be one compromise happens. And that's kind of a key point to this. You, you kind of don't find in total obedience, you kind of don't find a lot of spiritual warfare the way you would when you live in the land, living a life of compromise. It tells us in James, submit yourself to God, resist the devil and he will flee. There's three statements, not two. It isn't resist the devil and he will flee. It's submit yourself to God. And I realize if I put him in order as it is there, that's my choice. Submit myself to God. And then what, what part of the devil am I resisting? What, what aspect am I resisting? Well, it came in the first statement. If I'm submitting myself to God, then what the devil's trying to do is to get me to not resist, or I'm sorry, not submit myself to God. And that's what I need to resist. In other words, stay current, stay submitting myself to God. So when the enemy tries to get me to not submit to God, I'm resisting that. And of course he's going to flee because if I'm submitting to God, it's God who's fighting my battle. Now, the Philistines were known, by the way, for their metallurgy. They were great developers of iron. They had iron chariots. They were really, from all intended purposes, from a physical perspective, they were clearly the upper hand, militarily. But they weren't the upper hand because we had the Lord. It just forced us to rely on Him. So I want you to, if you would, to turn to a particular text for a moment, because I really want to point this out in regards to spiritual warfare. And that is 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you can, please. Now, for some of you, you're, you know, you're kind of flipping through your Bibles. Most of you, you're just kind of flipping through your apps, so that kind of helps. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are... Oh, go ahead and get there. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. We're pointing on strongholds, seeing every high and lofty ideal against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do you see that? Let me ask you, if the weapons of our warfare are not material, carnal, of the flesh, but rather are spiritual, and this is our spiritual battle, what is this spiritual battle over according to those verses? Our thought life. Notice, by the way, if you've ever played chess, which, by the way, was invented so that they could start seeing what a good general would be. It really was invented to try to bring out guys that had that kind of stratagem built into them because they knew those guys would be good leaders of military. If you've ever played chess, you know that once you take the king, the game's over. That's the goal. I mean, I always kind of thought it was funny. The king gets like this one frumpy move and the queen, she's like all over the place. She's just... It's amazing where she goes. And that must be a French thing. But, but I get this idea in that. But, I mean, it doesn't matter how much the queen rolls around and does her thing. She could be on the other, you know, on the other side of a board and a move. But once you take the king, it doesn't matter whether the queen's there or not. According to this, it's what you're taking captive is, is really the head. That's the point. 
And it tells us there we take every thought captive to, not just taking every thought captive, but taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Might I say, as much as we could focus on things that the Bible doesn't make clear and hear that, if we focus on things the Bible doesn't make clear, we're bound to find ourselves in all kinds of spiritual weirdness. Because if the Bible didn't make clear, then it must not be the most important thing. Or the Bible really isn't the companion it's supposed to be to us. And there are great books that are really fantastic fiction about angels fighting over your head and these kind of things going on. And, 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 and the, the problem is we call that extra biblical. We can't fight it with scripture, but we can't endorse it with scripture either. It's kind of like, well, could be, might not be. But I do know this, that the spiritual battle as it relates to us first and foremost is going to be a battle over your thought life. And the moment you start living a life of compromise, especially when you get to the point where you've numbed your conscience to do something in the face of God that is, is clearly wrong, you are asking for it, that spiritual battle. You're asking for it. And understand in this, it seems like that's how the Philistines show up. But isn't it interesting that the way that it works is that it's going to go from Samson, who's a deliverer, to Samuel, who's a priest, to David, who's a king. And once the king takes his proper throne, the Philistines are done. And in the same way in your life and in my life, the real spiritual battle is going to be over who really sits on the throne. So, spiritual battle, I think I spilled something on my shirt. Spiritual battle, I think I missed the bus. The real issue at that moment is, is the Lord on the throne? And if He is on the throne, how are you going to respond to it? Where's my thought life going to go at that moment? Is it going to go to a place that is surrendered under the submission of my king? Or is it now I'm going to take matters into my own hands? Which is exactly what we're resisting the devil for. In our text, we see now that the Philistines are actually for 40 years are going to hammer these people in their disobedience. In their position of doing evil in God's sight. Now that's a pretty radical thought. There's one other point I want to bring out here in regards to this, and then we'll walk through our text. And that is that notice the digression of society when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The moment everyone does what is right in their own eyes, there is no corporate sense of right or wrong. And if there's no corporate sense of right or wrong, what that does is it isolates us. It doesn't unify us, though that's what it promises. It actually isolates us. Because what happens then is my right and wrong is different from your right and wrong. And we can't really fellowship on those areas because sometimes what I think is right and you think is wrong is really going to divide us. And when you start isolating the people, you no longer have a corporate unity. And when you have no longer have a corporate unity, you have no more of a corporate vision. And what will happen is either someone's going to dictate right or wrong. or they're, and, and by the way, listen, tolerance is still dictating a right or wrong. You're aware of that, right? Because what they're saying is tolerance is the right, and if you don't tolerate, you're wrong. Now, listen, tolerate people, yes, but that doesn't mean you have to agree with their ideals. That's the point that's going to be necessary. Can I love a person that I disagree with their ideals and their standards? Of course I can. Jesus does. But that doesn't mean that I'm intolerant because I disagree with their standards. But I'm not going to try to kill them. But what's interesting is 
Judges shows us a society of tolerance and what happens when you live in a place where there's no dedicated right or wrong. And this is what happens is you see it with the deliverers. The first deliverer of our of our 13 was Othniel. If you remember, the people were already gathered together for to battle and they said, well, who's going to lead us? And then it became Othniel. The group was already ready. There was a corporate unity ready to fight the enemy. And then we just we just who's the guy that's going to walk in front of us? By the time we get to Gideon, he has to blow the trumpet, if you remember, to try to get the people together. So it went from us already being ready corporately to somebody having to summon us to Jephthah. And if you remember, Jephthah, he actually asks Ephraim to come and they don't even show up to Samson. And he does it alone. Hear that again. There was the unity of people ready to fight, looking for someone to lead them to a place where they had to be drummed up to do something to the place where they wouldn't even show up when it was drummed up. To the place where somebody does it alone. Let me ask you, where is that in your heart as a Christian? As a fellowship, where are we in that? Are we in that place where we're unified and saying, yes, I'm ready. We just want to go to the battle. Let's lock arms and get on our knees and fight with the Lord. You know, not with the Lord, but fight on the Lord's side, on our knees, in surrender and submission to him. Are we at that place where it's like, okay, man, we have to really have to pound. It's like, oh, come on, let's get it going. And the trumpet's blown. Or even if it is, are there, is, it, is, there, is there going to be the crowd showing up? Or is it going to be, well, I'll just do it ourselves? Because by the time we get to Samson, we see the failure of a society because of that. Well, with that in mind, by the way, we are not people who are supposed to do what is right in our own eyes. We are not supposed to be people that there is no king. Because our king is the king of kings. And he gave us a right, a standard of right and wrong for which we are to submit to. Me too. But this sad batch of people in Judges 13 now did evil in the sight of the Lord again. And the Lord delivered them into the Philistines for 40 years. Now, verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, from Zorah, 14 miles west of Jerusalem. It means hornet. Of the family of Dan, the Danites. By the way, that makes this guy the only Danite judge of all the 13. Whose name was Manoach. Manoach means rest or restful. And his wife was barren and had no children. Stop. We'll never read her name. Even her husband will say, this woman. But there is something interesting. And if, you can, if you're one of those students of Scripture, and I pray you are, when you see barrenness, there's something that gets you kind of excited inside. That sounds like a weird thing. But when God mentions it, it always seems like it's the forerunner to a big miracle. You are aware of the fact that Sarah was barren, Rebecca was barren, Rachel was barren. Those are the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before their miracles. In 1 Samuel 1 and 2, Hannah was barren before Samuel was born. That's her son. In Luke chapter 1, it was an older woman named Elizabeth who was barren beyond the age of childbearing. 
God speaks about barrenness in a time of disobedience. He promises it in Deuteronomy. But he never says that it's permanent. And maybe you go through a season and you feel barren. You feel like no real fruits coming about. But you're turning your heart to the Lord and you're trusting. I'm here to let you know that if we were to read this story, we'd see in this season Dan was barren or Hugo was barren. I'm picking on the guys at the moment because then it doesn't sound so personal. You know, uh, if I were to read that in your script, I would get excited. As long as there was a heart seeking the Lord in it. Because often, as we know, from, because we have the blessing of seasons here. Where I came from, there, the seasons where it rained and then it was sunny-ish and then it was cloudy-ish and the difference was between 10 and 20 degrees Celsius. And that was kind of it. There wasn't a real big change of seasons. I mean, here there is. Especially now, right? Now that we're supposed to be heading to the spring and, you know, space heaters are actually off, uh, off season. I, I do want to let you know, a side note, a little announcement uh, starting Sunday, God willing, we will have four space heaters to heat up the church on Sundays from now on and Wednesdays. Praise the Lord for that. You probably doesn't probably doesn't surprise you. We will be putting them in the front of the church, so you could be in the front and warm, or you can hang back in the back and be cool. Uh, but we are going to have that. So, but I, in, our point of it is, is that here there are seasons, and when you look, you realize there are certain telltale things of 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 fall and of autumn and then of winter, and you see the trees go barren. But the, when the trees go barren, what we don't see in that cold is how it demands the roots to grow deeper. And then we get to this hint of spring with the cherry blossoms. And I love that because what that says is it's going to be a fruitful summer. The first thing you actually see, if you think about it, is beauty. You see something that looked dead start to look beautiful. But understand here, you get to that place where if you've been barren long enough, it just you don't see spring coming. It's like Narnia. And that's where she's kind of at here. We're never going to read that the angel directly appears to the husband. I kind of wonder about that. It is important to note, by the way, that the book of Proverbs tells us that the glory of the children is their father. In other words, you really want to know what their kids are going to be like? Look at dad. And that's assuming that dad's around. And I find that interesting because the way that we look at Samson, there's, there's something about him, obviously. There's, I mean, what, which one of us looks and goes, now there's a guy to emulate. Though he's one of the most famous guys in all of Scripture, unbelievers, people who don't read the Bible, know him kind of like he's the Christian version or the, the Jewish version of Hercules. you know. But in the end of it all, he really did not have a personality to, to, to by any way to imitate. And we read now in verse 3 that the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. Now remember, he just said that she was barren. And he said to her, Indeed, now you're barren and have borne no children. Imagine, ladies, you've been trying to have a baby for a long time, and some total stranger walks up to you and starts with that. Now, I remind you, in this culture, it wasn't like a stranger man was supposed to talk to a woman at all. So he hits her, if you will, at a particular area where at least she knows that he's not just trying to talk smack to her. And he says, but you shall conceive a son. Now, I do want to point out quickly in verse 3 that it doesn't say, 
an angel of the Lord, but notice the angel of the Lord. That is key. Within the body of Christ, there are many of us who kind of will look at it and call that a Christophany, which means an earlier Jesus showing up in a different skin before the babe that we see in Bethlehem. Uh, Genesis 16, we see that to Hagar. It is the angel of the Lord in Genesis 22 that tells Abraham to stop. It is the angel of the Lord that speaks to Moses in the burning bush. That gets gives Balachim his what for in Numbers 22. It's the angel of the Lord who has shown up in Judges 2, 6, 13. And 2, by the way, the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you out of Egypt and brought you to the land which I, which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant. I will never break my covenant with you. This is what the angel of the Lord is saying. Judges 6, the angel of the Lord appeared, of course, to Gideon and said, Hail, mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. But this will be our last mention, by the way, in Judges 13.21 will be the last mention of him here in the book. It tells us in Psalms 34, uh, 7, one of my favorite verses or my favorite Psalms, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. I remind you, angel is not a species. Angel is an occupation. It means messenger. Matter of fact, when you're a good messenger, the word for good is ev or you, and evangelos is where we get the word evangelist. You didn't grow wings and turn into a little, you know, Raphaelish naked baby, you know, that sort of sings boy band. I mean, truth be said, an angel is a messenger. Matter of fact, when we that John the Baptist sent messengers to ask Jesus, "Are you really the guy?" The term is angelos. He sends angels. Now he doesn't send winged beings. Cherub and seraph are species. But an angel, in its simplest sense, is a messenger. And Jesus, nobody speaks a better message than Jesus. Matter of fact, it's exactly what Hebrew says right at the beginning. In times past and in various ways, God has spoken to his people, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his Son, whom we appointed heir of all things. Now, verse 4 says, Now therefore, remember, the, the angel of the Lord is speaking to this barren woman and says, Hey, I know you're barren. I know you haven't had any kids. But you're going to. You're going to have one. Now, therefore, verse 4, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink. By the way, you're aware of the fact God knew well before science figured out that alcohol for a pregnant gal is a bad idea. And not to eat anything unclean. Leviticus 11 make that clear. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to... God from the womb. And he shall begin, notice there's our begin, to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. He will begin, Samuel will pick up the the baton from him, take the baton from him, and then ultimately David will finish the job. Now, Now, please hear me in this, because obviously he says a Nazarite as if she should know what it is, and that comes from number six, which obviously had already been written down, so that would have been the case. In number six, when we talk about that, I'm going to read you just the first, if you will, the first seven verses, because I really want you to get the key point of this Nazarite, because this is really where the rubber meets the road for me as we look at this text. And I see the failure here in Samson. It says in Numbers chapter six, verse one, about this Nazarite, which means separate, separate to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to the children of Israel and say to them that when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take a vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink, just as he spoke, as we see the angel speaking to the mother. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine or nor vinegar made from similar drink. He shall neither drink any grape juice or eat fresh grapes or raisins. You know, he's like, if it's grape, don't touch it. Grape flavored gum, don't even go near it. You know, all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced from the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of his vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until all the days are fulfilled in which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Nor shall he make himself unclean even for his father or his mother or his brother or sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. Now, this is our key here. That And, I, and I, please hear me on this because... Man, they're looking at a room where there's not a lot of parents, and that's okay, but there'll be a day. I'm not, you know, not prophesying. But I do want to point out something here. That when God spoke about Nazarite vow, first of all, he said there was, there was no set time for it. It wasn't like it had to be 40 days, it had to be three months, it had to be a year. He just said, you make that choice. Because the, the cool thing about a Nazarite vow was you were making the choice to do it in the first place. God never said... On this day of the year, you have to be a Nazarite. He's like, if you want to, man or woman, he made clear, this wasn't just a man thing. If you really wanted to be separate, you need to recognize you were to be separate to the Lord. There's the point. The whole point of it is everything you're leaving behind, you are trading for God. You are leaving something to better embrace God. And he said it in three basic areas. The area of luxury, as he spoke of it in grapes. The area of vanity, as he spoke of it of hair. And the area of mortality, as he spoke of it in regards to being near dead things. Now, we've talked about that, a few of us, in regards to the area of, what would it be like if we did that before Easter and whatever time it was to say, Lord, if there's anything in any of these areas that is keeping me from really being really rolled over about how amazing it is that you rose from the dead. Change that in my heart. <clears throat> Let me get away from those things. But I don't want to just separate myself from those things. The constant reiteration here was separate to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. And this becomes the problem with Samson. The problem with Samson is that Samson was separate, but he wasn't separate to the Lord. Samson... I mean, so what he looks like in his simplest sense is he looks like a kid raised in a Christian home. That's what he looks like. Where what happens is there are rules and standards. We don't drink in our house. It's true, by the way. We don't. Well, we drink things. We just don't drink alcohol. We, you know, we don't have a problem with grape juice. You know, oh, there are certain movies we don't watch in the house. Well, we're outside the house for that matter. There are certain laws and standards that would be expected to be higher than perhaps the average house. But if the children don't recognize those separations are to the Lord, then it'll just be a spoil sport rain on your parade law is what it'll be. Saturday nights, we don't watch, in the, you know, I don't, I'm just telling you because it's 
at least how it relates to me. Saturday nights, we don't watch anything secular in our house. Now, we can watch movies throughout the week. And, you know, that's a personal conviction. If you're the kind I don't have and want anything to do with Hollywood or whatever, bless you for it. In our home, you know, we're careful. We certainly don't go past certain ratings because that's just kind of key. But on Saturday nights, the whole point is I really want my heart. I don't want anything in the house, be it in what I could hear or watch, that is somehow going to lead me away from my heart being distracted or lead me to my heart being distracted from the things that get my heart ready, not just from teaching on a Sunday or, or leading worship, if you will, on a Sunday, but just being ready to be excited about coming in and being with the Lord and being with you guys. And I, I want that to be my heart. I, I mean, it's like my Wednesdays I try to set aside during the day. I just want it so that I, I want it so that my mind and heart are in the right place, my spirit's in the right place. So when I see you guys, I'm kind of in the zone already. I'm not like, oh, I hope I wind up being in the right place by the time we're done with the night. But I don't know if my kids get that. I mean, for them, it's like, oh, we don't get to watch things we like on Saturday night. But I think at least, I mean, we've sat along with them enough times where they've nodded and can reiterate the whole explanation. But the point ultimately is, you know, really, if no one else, please, for my sake, you know, when you leave the house, you do whatever you want. But in our house, I, I just want my heart right. I just want to make sure that my heart is in that place because people went through this radical amount of things before they went to temple. I mean, they made sure that their hearts were right, their minds were right. It wasn't like if I showed up at temple, it's going to get me right. I got right with the Lord before there so that I was ready to serve in whatever way God wanted me to the people around me so that I could be in awe of God and I could be with other people and say, isn't it great that we're here doing this? You know, I mean, imagine if that's where we came to versus the whole idea that we kind of get here and then it's like, well, church didn't fix me. Well, church isn't going to fix you. Church is a vehicle. That would be like, you know, you take the bus that takes you to the hospital, but somewhere while you're on the bus, you get sicker and you're like, well, the bus didn't make me well. The bus wasn't supposed to make you well. It was supposed to take you to the one who did. And understand with Samson here, this, the, the angel of the Lord is speaking to the mom, who, by the way, again, we don't have her name. And he's like, listen, this guy's going to be separate, unique, except for one other guy we have in Scripture that seems to be the same. Do you know who the other guy is that seems to have a Nazarite vow of some sort from birth to death? John the Baptist. Uh, by the way, he seems to do it right. He seems to be separate to the Lord. Samson, what we're going to see, though, is a guy with a fantastic calling, with a tremendous empowerment, but his heart's not right. And here's the scary thing as we kind of you know, walk through the chapter is that we could do the same thing. We could want God's power and we could want to see God manifest and we could want to see all this. But if our heart isn't in the right place, what in the world are we doing? What we're trying to do is show off. We're trying to be like heavyweight wrestlers that somehow want to slam bam someone else in the process instead of really seeking to humble ourselves and go, God, change me and then use me. Give me this power for something more than just so people go, wow, are you cool? He goes, look at this kid. He's telling the mom, imagine, ladies. God's like, look at you're going to have a son. Now, there's no, like, the miracle. I mean, we don't read, by the way, how old she is or anything. Josephus, not like the guy's going to know, but he says the tradition was she was a really fine woman as far as she was really pretty. But, but we don't read that. But somewhere down the line, the husband's going to have to learn of it because, well, we're adults. You kind of get the idea. It isn't like they're just, you're going to wake up and there's a baby, you know? Anyways, but he says, like, look at, you, you know, you, you've been barren. You've never been able to have children. You're going to have a child, but this child's going to be special. This child's going to be a deliverer. And he is going to begin to deliver the people 
from the Philistines. Who, I remind you, they've been oppressed for four... What we read is they'll be oppressed for 40 years. Now, we don't read when, how old Samson is when he begins the sort of process. But that means his entire upbringing, he, they're still oppressed. If you think it through. So what happens? He's going to be a Nazarite to the womb. And because he's going to be a Nazarite from even before he's born, by the way, the idea is that he sees this, sees Samson as a baby way before he's even born. He says, so mom, I want you to take care of this. I want you to treat that baby like a, like a Nazarite even now because even what you're eating is going to make your way to your baby. So the woman, verse 6 then, came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me. And his countenance was like the countenance of, notice, the angel of God. Very awesome. But I didn't ask him where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, there's an interesting fact to this, and that is that if God has to tell you not to do something, then it must be on your list of options in your head or heart. God's not going to say, now, you know, Hugo, don't go and try to, you know, don't go join that professional basketball team. I um, kind of don't think that's already in Hugo's list of options right now. And when God says don't do something, chances are it's something that either is currently practiced or at least is considered to be practiced. And that's important to note. But with that in mind, she tells him, hey, look, this guy said we were going to have a boy. And uh, I don't know where he came from, but he was really shiny and real bright. And verse 8 says, so you know how her husband responds? He prays. And he prays to the Lord and he says, oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. That's a good good way to introduce the husband, don't you think? Although I still kind of wonder why in the world didn't the Lord appear to him? Why did he appear to her? Because she was barren and he wanted to make sure he could speak comfort to her personally. We don't really know why. But we do read in verse 9 that God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of the Lord came to the woman again. Not to him, but to the woman. As she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And the woman ran in haste to told her husband and said, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose. So he's not in the field. He seems to be kicking it somewhere else. And he followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoach said, Now let the words come to pass, your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? And that's a strange question because still in the Middle East, you would assume that the boy was going to be the father's occupation unless God told you otherwise. The angel of the Lord said to Manoach, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor anything unclean, eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And I think this is interesting because he's asking, what's going to be the boy's occupation? And the angel seems to be less concerned with his occupation and more concerned with what he's occupied by. 
And might I say the same thing to you and to me? Sometimes we're in that place where like, God, what do you want me to do? What's going to be my job? (laughs) I know some of you are considering that even now. And the Lord wants to make clear first and foremost, more than just your occupation, what is it that occupies you? What things really entertain your heart? What things really draw you in that really distract you or draw you closer to him? Because he's much more concerned with that. If our hearts are completely his and completely available, he could deploy us just about anywhere. And it's not going to ma- I mean, we're just he's just going to put us in a place where we can make the biggest difference. But if we're really occupied by such things that really have no purpose for eternity, and that's really where our hearts are sitting, well, then pretty much any occupation is going to be a dangerous one. No. Manoach said to the angel of the Lord, you know, with that, because the angel just says, hey, look at, just tell your wife if she's there, just make sure she does what I told her. And notice, I'm not going to give you a lot of the future with this. What I'm going to tell you is, is I've already given you clear instruction, and, and I don't want to give you any other instruction until you make sure that happens. And he tends to do that. You're aware of that. He tends to make really clear, here's your next step. But God, I want four steps. God's like, no, I'm only going to tell you one. And until you do that, I'm not going to tell you more. Why? Because if I told you four steps, you wouldn't talk to me until you took your fourth. But if God only tells us one step at a time, it demands us to stay in constant fellowship with him. Isn't that good news? So the Menach said to the angel of the Lord, please let me detain you. We'll prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Menach, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. (coughs) Excuse me, though you detain me, I won't eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord, because Menach didn't know it was the angel of the Lord. Now, it almost makes it sound like because he didn't know he was an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, but he was still willing to offer him a sacrifice. And he's like, look, if you're going to do it, make sure you do it to the Lord. Menach said to the angel, well, what's your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? seeing that it is wonderful. Wonderful? That's my name? Or that it's the adjective of that name? Interesting, both. By the time we get to the book of Isaiah, one of the verses we're most familiar with, another of of all the miraculous births in Scripture, none more miraculous than the virgin birth. None more miraculous. An old person giving birth, yes, that is miraculous. Now, granted, let's say Sarah, 90, that's way out of the norm. But it still took two people. But for a gal to have never known a man and to have to give birth, that on the other hand, that of course is the greatest miracle. And interestingly enough, that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. Here it says in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born. Speaking of that virgin child, the child born from the virgin. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's a wedding metaphor. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I, it was early in my walk, it was easy for me to put the two words together like his name was Wonderful Counselor. 
but you realize the way that they're listed, it's, his name will be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God. His name will be called Mighty God. Could you imagine? Who do you call Mighty God but, I don't know, Mighty God? And this child born from a virgin will be called Mighty God. He will be called Everlasting Father. And yet, this Everlasting Father will also be called Prince. Did you notice not King of Peace, but Prince of Peace? A prince we know has to be the son of the king. He has to be the Everlasting Father, and yet he would be called the Prince of Peace. But he would be called Wonderful. And it's one of the reasons why it's easy to assume this angel of the Lord is Jesus stepping in. So Menach took this young goat with a grain offering and he offered it upon a rock or the rock to the Lord. And he, this is the angel, did a wondrous thing. That word wondrous, same word that we saw with wonderful in the root. In verse 18, my name is wonderful. The word there is the word pili. And the word here is the word pila. He did a wondrous thing while Menach and his wife looked on. So imagine you're doing this sacrifice. I mind you, a burnt sacrifice, everything gets burned up. You're just saying, and remember, it is the sacrifice that says, total surrender here, it's all yours. And it happened as the flame went up toward heaven from afar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of fire uh, on the altar, a flame on the altar, uh, of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. You think so? So here you are, you're having a conversation with someone. And I remind you, Manoah doesn't even know it's the angel of the Lord. Now, I would assume maybe it's a prophet. This is kind of, you know, okay, he's, he's given some information. He's, he clearly knows the situation with my wife. He should know. And then he gives this promise to her. I really hope you're right, is what he's saying. So they give this, say, if you're going to give a sacrifice, give it to the Lord. And he's giving it to the Lord. And as he's giving it to the Lord, this guy just goes, zoop, and up he goes. And at that point, poof, off they go to their faces. And from that, by the way, what's clear is Menach recognizes that was God. We're going to see why in just a moment here. But what's interesting, if he's like, well, go ahead and just do it to me, because I'm the Lord anyways, he could have done that. But the whole point of it was, I want you to recognize, you need to do this to the Lord and resolve in your heart who that's going to be. Because otherwise, the next guy that has a prophecy, he's going to just offer it to him. And he really wants to make sure his heart's in the right place. Now, what's interesting is, is that it seems to me that the two of them, we don't have a lot of, I mean, after this chapter, we're just going to see the life of Samson, and we kind of don't really see his upbringing. Now, we don't know what they did or didn't do. And I think that that's an important thing. Because if they did it right, the son still turned out a jerk. If they didn't do it right, you'd think, well, whatever you do, don't do that or your son will be a jerk. But sometimes you have people that really love the Lord and they still raise a jerk. You don't have a promise just because of it. But we do have a promise of this. If you raise your child in the ways of the Lord, when they're older, they will not depart from it. Somewhere in between child and older, they seem to have this really... Weird time of figuring it out themselves. But we cling to those promises that when they're older, they won't depart from it. And before you have children, you are the best parent there is. But you'd be, oh man, my children aren't going to do that. There's no way. You know, you see them in the supermarket and you're like, oh man, that parent, if that were me, that child would not be crying like that. And I like to record those moments because sooner or later, you're going to be doing that. You know, so many times you just watch that and you think, man, we are such heroes in our mind, but in practice, we are the damsel in distress. And kids will do that to you. But I do know this, that the relationship seems to be one where Samson's calling the shots to his parents. He's going to see a Philistine woman and he's going to go get her for me. 
He doesn't say, excuse me, Father, or any of that. And I wonder if somewhere in all of that, them seeing him so precious didn't allow them to take the role of leadership that they should have taken. But we don't really have proof of that in the sense other than the, rela- the, the fruit of that relationship later. We don't read anywhere in there that the people, and please understand, though they have this promise, it isn't like Samson ran around every day and he just started picking up really heavy items and throwing them. We don't have any record that what we read is the Holy Spirit comes upon him and something happens. It isn't like, well, every day he just something weird happens. Like, you know, there he was walking and he just picked up a cow and carried it inside. We don't have any of those stories. It's like these moments happen where the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he gets ridiculously strong. And then what will happen is, is then it's like he's kind of back to normal after the other side of it, if you will. And the reason I say that it isn't like they should be afraid of him because they're like, well, that's Samson. He's got, you know, you don't realize that's basically Christian Hercules. You know, let's not start a fight with this kid. They were still his parents. And we don't read any of that happens until later. So anyways, so follow me in this. So it says at this point, it happened that the angel goes and they fall on their faces. And what we're going to find out is that dad seems to be the less stable of the two of them. In verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Menach and his wife. And Menach knew that it was the angel of the Lord that he was. And Menach said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Have you noticed that? Because remember, God said in Exodus, no one can see my face in there. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, would he, would, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all of these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. Now, notice his wife's like, have you really thought this through? And this happens, by the way, in most couples, each one of them have their moments like this. It's kind of fun to watch it. It's always nicer, by the way, when the other one's having that moment, I guess. But it's like, you know, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. And it's like, I mean, it's like this. So this angel came down. He says, I have this amazing plan for you. You're going to have this son. He's going to be he's going to start to deliver Israel. So so already I want you to change your diet. I want you to be a lot more careful about it. So there you have it. And he's speaking to the wife. And why is he speaking to the wife? Because she's the one who has a direct order in regards to the son. The direct order is you have to be careful of your diet because of the boy. Telling the husband isn't going to help that necessarily yet. So with that, then they, they offer the sacrifice. It's clearly accepted. He goes up in the sacrifice and he's like, oh my goodness, it's God. He falls on this. And here's the point of it. And he looks and he goes, oh, God just did this. I just had this amazing encounter and now he's going to kill me. And he's like, look at it. And what she says is, he didn't bring you this far to kill you now. If he gave you this promise, why would he kill you? Why would he just, I mean, otherwise he would have gone, here I am, and then kill you. But why give you a promise and then kill you? Philippians tells us, by the way, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. When he began that good work, the difference between God and anyone else is that he actually knows the entire cost of the project that is you. There's nowhere in it he's going to go, Oh, that's a hidden cost. Or, oh, I didn't realize it was going to take that too. God knows every bit of the construction that is necessary to make you into his image. And me too. And because he knows it from the beginning, he enters into the relationship knowing all of the work that's still ahead of him. None of it's going to take him by surprise. And so we look at it and we go, God, if I had learned this about me, I would have given up by now. But understand the good news is, is that God's different from us in every good way. And He's not going to quit. Please hear me. He has not brought you this far for you to die now. 
He's not started this thing so it could just die. He has started this thing so that he could show his power and his might through weak and frail and faulty people so that in the end of it all, he gets the glory and you go, wow, he really did do it. And the less it looks possible, the more it seems impossible. Well, then the more that God gets the glory. That's the beauty in this. So this guy's freaking out. He's like, oh my goodness, we saw God. We're going to die. Which is always funny when we say things like, you know, open the eyes, my Lord. I want to see you. I saw you. Now we're all dead. I mean, think of that through. But I do want to die. The old guy that was me, I want him completely dead. Seeing the Lord and letting that die, that's exactly what I want. If no one can see him live, well then let that guy die. That the new creation Christ wants to make me, let him rise up as he intends. So with this, he's like, you know, think this through for a moment, honey. This really isn't what you think. If God would have actually wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have given us these promises. And if God really wanted you to die, he would not have given you those promises. It tells us, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says that may the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, by the way, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that God will confirm you to the very end. So the baby's born. Somewhere between verse 23 and 24, nine months take place. So the woman bore a son and she called his name like the sun. That's what Samson means, Shamshon. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. Do you realize of all the people in the book of Judges, it's the only one we read, and the Lord blessed him? Is that kind of weird? And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. At Mahanech then, or if you will, the camp of, not the permanent dwelling, but the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, interesting, in the book of Judges, Othniel, Gideon, and Jephthah have all had an experience with the Spirit of the Lord recorded. The other ones, by the way, we don't. I mean, it doesn't mean they didn't, but we don't have them recorded. We don't have Ehud have an experience recorded, or Deborah, or Barak have an experience recorded. Three guys before this point have a clear encounter with the Holy Spirit. Othniel, we read this in three, Judges 3.10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. Judges 6, about Gideon, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. That's when he blew the trumpet, the people came. Chapter 11, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Yepthah. Did you notice in all three cases it was the same basic situation, which was the Spirit of the Lord came upon. For our last few minutes of this, I want to make this clear. The Holy Spirit is clearly mentioned in three different types of encounters with human beings. Two of them come from the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, He is with you, but will be in you. The Holy Spirit dwells with, or if you will, beside an unbeliever pushing that person to the cross, bringing you into their life to reinforce what the Holy Spirit's already pushing them to the cross. His whole purpose is to get you intimate with God. Before you knew Jesus, the Holy Spirit was hounding you, pushing you from the outside. But the moment you said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit came 
into you, guaranteeing your inheritance. That's Ephesians 1.13. Before you said yes to Jesus, before you said yes to his gift at the cross, before you said yes to his resurrection and his lordship, the Holy Spirit was pushing you to that yes. Convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, he tells us in John 16. That's what he was always going, you know he's right. That's why people get so weirded out when you try to share Jesus with them. They're like, oh, I don't want to hear. It's like funny. You could talk to them about Buddha or you could talk, you can make up a God and talk about how you pray to cantaloupe. It doesn't bother them. You could talk about how you pray to Santa or Father Christmas and it doesn't bother them and how you still believe in the Easter bunny. The moment you bring up Jesus, they start getting all weirded and it's because the Holy Spirit's pushing at that point. You don't have to convince somebody. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He's brought you in for reinforcement. And to tell the message. But then the moment they say yes, the Holy Spirit starts, moves inside of you, makes his home, and then starts cleaning us from the inside out. Hallelujah. But then the third situation, Jesus said in, in Acts 1.8, when he said the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that, by the way, is the one we see in the book of Judges. With Othniel, with, as we see with these guys as well. Gideon and Yephthah, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, empowering them for God's calling. Every human being that has said yes to Jesus has a calling on their life, and we are not to neglect it. Paul, by the way, spends, seems like he spends half of the end of his books telling people, get busy about the calling God put in your life. Tell Archippus to do that. Timothy, stop being such a scaredy cat and step up and do your calling. Clearly, you've seen it. Clearly, you have this calling. Clearly, people have acknowledged that. The elders have acknowledged that. The Holy Spirit's there to empower you. What's stopping you? What's wrong with you? Why aren't you doing this? That's what Paul's saying. And I get this. No matter what your calling is, you can do it in your flesh, your own strength, or you can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the good news. Scripture says God does not give his spirit by measure. Listen to that again. He does not give his spirit by measure. What does that mean? I don't get more Holy Spirit than you do. The issue is the Holy Spirit's not in it. The question is whether the Holy Spirit has us or not. That's the point. If we both have the same size cup, the issue is which one is full of what? In the end of it all, we have unlimited access to the power of God through his Holy Spirit. The issue is whether we're asking. He says, if you ask, hey, if you go to your father and you ask for bread, is he going to give you a stone? If you ask for an egg, is he going to give you a scorpion? He goes, look at If your father knows how to give you good gifts if you ask him, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? So ask him. You've heard it. God, empowering me with your Holy Spirit to do what I cannot humanly do. But please understand, if all we're looking for is the power of God, but we're not really looking for the Holy Spirit to do his work in us and just through us, we're going to be like Samson. See, what Samson seems is a guy that has the power of God, but he doesn't seem to have the presence of God in his life the way he should. The idea that it's like, you know, God, cleanse me from the inside out. Give me your heart, your will, your desires, your pleasures, and the things that you hate. Let my heart hate those things too, so that when you do empower me, I'm doing it for your will, not mine. Does that make sense? Because what we find with Samson is the word is different. With Othniel, Gideon and the up the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. 
Here it says the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. And the word now that we see, the word means, if you will, to push, to beat, to thrust. The idea of, by the way, of violently pushing. You know, sometimes where guys want to get in a fight and they start it by pushing each other. That's the word that's used here of the Holy Spirit. Samson, by the way, is where often we read that only in 310, is where Gideon, we only read it in 634. With Jephthah, we read it only in 1129. The Holy Spirit moves upon him here, and then again, not just 1325, but 146, 1419, and 1514. Four different times the Holy Spirit has some kind of encounter with Samson. And he's beating him, pushing him, shoving him. You ever have that where you feel like you're kind of in that place where God, the Holy Spirit... You don't just need the Holy Spirit's power. You need the Holy Spirit to kind of come over you and just beat you, beat you out of you so he can do what he needs to do. Now, that might be fear. That might be insecurity. That might be pride. That might be just worldliness. But somewhere in it, it's like it's like the Holy Spirit's going, Samson, get with it. Come on, Samson. You know, so that he can actually do what he wants, what God's calling him to do. Oh, God, don't let us be those kind of people. And you realize in this, it's like there's an engulfing that we need and not just an empowering. There needs to be a surrender in our hearts so that the strength would be properly used. We might say the heart and the heat. God, give me the right heart and then heat me up to do your purposes with your power. So how does the chapter end? With the Holy Spirit knocking around Samson. Why? Because though he seems to have a call in his life, he doesn't seem to have the heart. What we're going to see with Saul as we bring this to close and pray, that the predecessor to King David is a guy with a fantastic calling with no consecration. Here what we find is a guy that is actually separate. He's just not, he's separate from, but he's just not separate unto. And what a horrible place. Imagine if I put all of the constraints of marriage on you, but you didn't even have a relationship with someone. And I mean, how sad would that be that you'd make all of these sacrificial choices, but you're separating yourself from things, but with nothing to separate yourself unto? How empty would that be? You realize that's exactly the way the world sees us, as they see us people who just don't do things because we're Christians, but they don't, they see us separate from at best, at best, but they don't see us separate unto anything. But we are not holy from. We are holy unto the Lord. We are not separate, just separate from. We're separate unto the Lord. And a Nazarite vow, his separation was his separation to the Lord. What we see with Samson is he's going to be separate from these things. Oh, he's, by the way, going to break all three of them. He'll be walking through vineyards. He'll have no problem with dead things. And ultimately, of course, it's his hair. But you'll find in all of that, it wasn't just like Samson, the whole thing was he was just a gigantic guy that actually kind of looked like a heavy metal singer. And somewhere down the line, he got a haircut and then he became wimpy. In the end of it all, there were three things that were part of the Nazarite vow. And he's going to take all three strikes. The last of them was his hair. It was the final strike. And what you find is, is that God is telling every one of us, what have I done in your life? Where do you know strength happens? Where do you know sucks your strength? What are those things? And what are those things in regards to those areas? In regards to the area, as we kind of look at it here, in the areas of luxury and convenience, or in the areas of vanity, or in the areas of, of you know, immortality and those things that just feed us into where all we can think about is this world and we don't think about things from an eternal perspective. Because Samson seems to be living his entire life that way. What the good news is, 
and all of that, that God can still use a complete bozo that doesn't even seem to have a heart for him, and he can still use him. God is so smart, he can use Satan against Satan. And he does, by the way. But in our lives, wouldn't it be better to enjoy the ride? Wouldn't it be better to celebrate the God who has, that has offered this relationship with us? That what we would ask is, God, immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Now, please understand, even among the Calvaries, I mean, there's this whole idea that that's sort of an esoteric experience. We need to be baptized in the Spirit. But I kind of get the idea as I look at it. If the Holy Spirit's current, the whole purpose is to make us intimate with the Father. The idea of being immersed in God's Spirit, I would want to be totally... I mean, when you were baptized, I don't, if I, we were to baptize Claudia, we wouldn't see her when she's baptized. All we would see is the water she's baptized in. I mean, we we're going to pull her up so that she would breathe. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the point of it. But if I were to be baptized in God's Holy Spirit, I'd like to think what you wouldn't see is me is what you would see is Him. And I would take the current that God would be putting me in to be intimate with Him. Wouldn't we want to be baptized in His Spirit so that His Holy Spirit could come upon us to empower us, but we'd have the right heart and mind in that? Or we could be like Samson, and you realize Samson's greatest victory was in his death. Could you imagine? Like The best thing you did was when you died. Now, on a positive note, of course, that's our story of Jesus. But it wasn't in spite of him. It was in conjunction with his will. And in the same way, once he surrendered to the Father, and in the same way, might I say with us, tonight, what I want to pray for us as believers here tonight who have accepted that gift of Jesus Christ, who have bowed our hearts to him and said, yes, Jesus, be more than just my Savior, be my Lord. That we would pray, God, Immerse me in your Holy Spirit so I would want what you want. I would value what you value. And then empower me to do your will. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you first of all. Father, we thank you that you would send your son Jesus to die on the cross and then, and then have him raise again so that, and raise him again so that we could have new life, that our guilt could be covered at the cross. So that we could say yes to Jesus. So we could even have the option of being set free, declared innocent, and given new life under his lordship. And I thank you that your Holy Spirit does convict, convince us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin that we're sinners. We're not right with you in and of ourselves. Righteousness, we can be made right through this gift you've given us at the cross. And judgment, what would happen if we didn't? But Lord, we recognize in saying yes to Jesus, we are surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Surrendering to His pushing us to that yes. Reconciling us to You, Father. And in doing so, we are submitting ourselves to the current of that Holy Spirit of, for Him to lead us deeper and deeper and more intimate in a relationship with you, Father, through Jesus Christ. And we recognize the moment we said yes to you, declaring Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he came inside to start the work of purifying us from the inside out, changing our heart and our mind, making us, in essence, absolutely different from the world. And if we spend our time trying to look like the world we recognize we are fighting the Holy Spirit you have placed within us. 
But as you change it, you open our eyes and, and give us different values and different desires and make unfun the things that are stupid anyways and are harmful to us, evil. We recognize even tonight, here in this room, we want more. We want all that you have for us. We recognize for each of us, you've placed a unique, bespoke calling in our lives. And however that calling is to be manifest, we could do it for us or we could do it for you. And we can certainly say that no matter what the calling is, there will be challenges and there will be opposition and there will be weirdness. But we recognize this, that it is in our compromise of our hearts that we see the Philistine issues arise in our own life. Things that don't belong there. Challenges of the old flesh or self being self-consumed in whatever way, through pride or through, um, through insecurity or whatever it would be, Lord. But here in this room right now, we want you to immerse us in your spirit so that what we would want is what you want. That we would have a heart that is completely tethered to eternity and sees this world as the place to see people rescued, not just the place to get comfortable and make a home. But we declare ourselves pilgrims, strangers, passers-by in this world. And with that, Lord, I also pray right now that as that is the case, then our, that you would empower us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Come upon us in such a way so that you would give us a desire to do your will and then give us the power to do it. Even as you tell us in Philippians, it is you who works within us to will to do and to do for your good pleasure. But may we recognize in all of it, it is to be separate unto you, to be holy unto you. Not just separate from things of the world, not just not doing things of the world, but for everything we say no to, may there be a yes in our hearts to you in some other area. So Lord, even tonight I pray, Soften our hearts and minds to who your Holy Spirit really is. And show us, Lord, in that, the battles that are in our mind of obedience and surrender to your Lordship and how that's the spiritual battle we see here. Give us hearts that truly bow to your Lordship as we should. In Jesus' name. Amen. Saints, thank you for the privilege of starting the story of Samson. God willing, we will actually go through all three chapters, we'll see next week, of the life of Samson, uh, because you just, it's just funky, you know, and, what we're, and may we learn the things we're supposed to learn from it. Uh, please be a blessing to each other. God bless you.